All right. Good morning, everybody. So good to have you here this morning. My name is John Anderson. I'm the campus pastor here. And again, let me welcome you, especially those of you that are new this morning. We are so glad that you are here. We want you to know we love new people here at Hope. It's why we exist uh, as a church for those that are new and for those that aren't here yet. That's why we exist as a church. And we are so glad that you're here. We believe it's no accident that you are here. And we really have been praying for you. We're excited about what God uh, is going to do in this place. Well, because it's been such an amazing week in Iowa, you know, we, we know it's coming. We know these cold temperatures are coming. We do live in Iowa uh, after all. I thought maybe some of us could use a little pick-me-up. So this week, uh, we gathered together as leaders and pastors of hope. We said, what, we could, what can we do to really boost people's spirits? Just get them excited and remind them that everything's going to be okay. And so we got some big news today. We've got a big announcement. It's the launch of our brand new campus. Everybody ready for this? Drum roll on your knees. Everybody drum roll for this. This is our brand new campus. Here we go. It is Hope Jamaica. Yes, everybody. Hope Jamaica. That's right. Yes. So we're having an informational meeting right after the service day. How many are interested in Hope Jamaica? Anybody interested? Wow, look at that. We got a launch team. We just... We just planted a church here this morning. Look at that. That's amazing. I'm only partially kidding because you never know what God might want to do. So I'm just kidding. Don't go tell everybody that like you heard Hope's launching a new campus because that's word, word gets around uh, like that. But you never know what God may want to do. But I think he's got some pretty important things left for us to do here, even in the frozen tundra of Iowa. God is on the move and it's exciting uh, to be a part of what God is doing here. As we get started this morning, as we get started with a new year, happy new year, by the way. Uh, welcome to 2000. 18, as we get started with this new year, I want to ask you a question, and it's a, it's a pretty deep philosophical question, but it's the second service, and hopefully you've been awake for a while, so I think you can handle it, but it's a very deep, thick, rich, philosophical question, so just brace yourselves for it. You ready for this? Where are you? Where are you? Some of you are like, that didn't blow my mind at all, right? Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not asking where you are physically, right? Yes, you're at Hope Des Moines, you're at 1821 Ingersoll, but deeper than that, where are you in your life these days? As you kind of stand and, and, and look out over the next year of 2018 and, and where you're currently at and the circumstances of your life, where are you? And maybe most importantly, where are you in relationship to God? In your relationship with God, do you feel close to him? Do you feel far away? Do you feel distant? Some of you maybe feel really, really close to him. Life is going great. Everything's good. Some of you feel like, man, I haven't heard from God in a long time. I heard somebody tell me last week, everybody else seems like they know how to pray and can hear from God. I haven't heard from God ever. Does God really communicate? Is God close to me? Some of you are maybe not so much that you feel far away from God, but you're distracted. <laughs> you're running around trying to do everything else and please everybody else and be involved in everything, and you've got all your hobbies and activities, and yet tending to your soul has been an afterthought. Some of you are a little distracted, and so you don't feel very close to God. Some of you are excited. You've set goals. You've got your resolutions. You're excited. You're feeling really good about that. You're moving forward in your relationship with God. Some of you are stuck. Some of you have kind of plateaued in your relationship with God, and life's just kind of blah and boring and, and mundane. Where are you? Where are you? And the reason that I ask you that question at the start of a new year is because that is the very question that cut to the heart and soul of the main characters in our Bible story today that you just heard read. And that question comes from none other than the God who created you, from God himself who asks, where are you? And even thousands and millions of years later, he still asks that question to us this morning. Where are you in relationship to me, God says, as the beginning of a new year starts. <clears throat> I want you to mill that around, excuse me, 
and it gets me all choked up. I want you to mill that around in your head as you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you're not there already, you can take out your phone. I'm encouraging you to follow along in your Bible app or your tablet, whatever you have. If you're going to tweet, <clears throat> tweet about the sermon. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. And so some of you are very familiar with this story, but uh, we're going to look at it in a whole new light, probably with some illustrations that you've never thought about before. You picked a great day to come. We are starting a brand new sermon series for 2018 for the month of January and February today. It's called Genesis, a binge-worthy Bible series is what we're talking about today. So you picked a great day to come. Elbow your neighbor, wake him up right now, look him in the eyes and say, neighbor, you picked a great day to come. Tell him that right now. You picked a great day to come. You picked a great day. Genesis, a binge-worthy Bible series. Everybody say binge. binge. Now, normally when you think of binge, you think of it in a negative light, like something that's unhealthy. You binge on Doritos or licorice or food that's not good for you or whatever, pizza or whatever it is. Or you binge on your favorite TV show. We live in a world where now, where maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, the word binging on a TV show didn't exist because you actually had to wait for the next episode of a TV show. But thanks to the wonderful, glory, holy creations called Hulu and Netflix, you don't even have to wait, right? You can watch it and you can binge on whatever that is. So just to show of hands, not just binging, but just your favorite show. How many of you have a favorite TV show that you follow, that you watch? Okay, keep your hands up for a second. How many of you have ever binged on that TV show, right? Don't, don't lie, you're in church. Some of you just took your hands down, right? We all do that, right? We've all done that before. My wife and I don't watch a lot of TV, but from time to time, we, like, we kind of get hooked on some shows. I like a well-done documentary or whatever, and sometimes we watch these shows that, you know, the episodes are already done. We're watching them two or three years after we watch them, and it's late at night, and we look at each other like, we really have to go to bed, right? The kids are going to be up in a few hours. We, it's like 11 o'clock. We have to go to bed, and the episode gets done. And of course, it's a cliffhanger, and it leaves you wanting, like, we have to find out what goes on. Thanks to our beautiful friends at Netflix that knows how our human brains work, they put that little box in the corner of the screen that says, next episode begins in 12 seconds. And we're like, 12 seconds! We have to figure out our lives in 12 seconds! What are we going to do? Are we going to watch it? Should we go to bed? Are we going to watch it? And then they give you the little synopsis, right? Somebody and da-da-da-da-da. Like, we have to know what goes out. And we kind of look at each other with that sheepish grin and we go, well, let's just do one more, right? It can't hurt, right? One more. You'll get up with the kids. Okay, okay, fine. And then we, then we watch one more. We binge, and Americans' binging TV habits are well documented, but that is another sermon for another day. My question for you this morning is, what would it look like to actually binge on something healthy? What would it look like to actually binge on something that could actually fill up your soul? Because Netflix is great, and TV is great, and movies are great, and Facebook and the internet are all great, but do they really fill you up? Or do they kind of just leave you empty afterwards? Like, oh, that was fun, and that entertained me for a while. But we're talking about something way deeper than entertainment. I'm talking about filling up your soul. So that when God asks, where are you in relationship to me, you close. Because we talk every day, because we have a daily relationship. What would it look like to actually binge on the Bible? And that's what we're going to do during the month of January and early February. Here's where we're going in this sermon series uh, the next few weeks. We're going to base it on some of your favorite binge-worthy TV shows, okay, that strangely enough relate to some of the key stories in the book of Genesis, okay? So today we're going to talk about Adam and Eve. Next week, Arrested Development. 20th and 21st, we're going to look at uh, the miniseries Lost. 27th and 28th, a lot of you probably watched the show This Is Us. We're going to talk about that. The third and the fourth, The Crown, uh, Jacob and Esau, some of you like that one. And we'll wrap it up with Mad Men on February 10th and 11th. So what you'll see, isn't it interesting how a lot of these shows 
directly correlate with what's going on in the Bible. Like, it's the book of Genesis. Like, all of these shows need to be paying copyright fees to God, right? He wrote the story, right? It's in the Bible, and that's why we love them so much. And so if you have some friends in your life, some friends, neighbors, coworkers, family, whoever they are, that normally is like, ah, I'm not really a churchy, religious person. First of all, good news, you can tell them neither was Jesus, right? Just didn't really have any time for stuffy religious people, right? He came for people that were out there, that were on the fringes. And some of you have friends that don't want anything to do with church, but they love some of these shows. Invite them. The worst thing they can say is no. So over the next month or so, invite your friends and say, hey, we're going to be looking at this. You might enjoy it. And kind of look at the Bible in a new way. Some of you are like, geez, what are we turning into heathens or something at Hope? Like TV shows and worship? We're supposed to talk about the Bible, right? Do you know what Jesus did to communicate these complex truths of the Bible and of the kingdom? He told stories. And he used the language of the day to tell stories so that people could understand complex theological things in a way that brought it down to earth and they could understand. They were called parables, and a lot of your Bible is full of them. These are modern-day parables. We're using the stories and the language of the day that people are listening to to communicate truths about the kingdom and where we're at. So please invite your friends uh, these next couple weeks. Let's binge on the Bible, and let's binge on worship. I don't know what your resolutions are, but we binge on a lot of things. Why not binge on worship and come every single week and lock it in and say, as a family, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that's the one. If anything, God deserves way more than an hour a week. But you can set aside an hour to be together and lock that in, put it in your schedule, make it a priority, and nothing messes with that because the God that gave you breath and lungs got you up this morning, and he deserves our worship and our praise even if you don't feel like it or not. Amen? So put that in your schedule and make it a habit, all right? And if somebody asks you what you're doing, say, for a New Year's resolution, you can say, I'm binging on the Bible and on worship because it's actually going to fill me up and it's not going to leave me empty. No matter where you're at in your relationship with God, he's calling out to you this morning. And I just want to remind you this. Even if you don't feel close to God this morning, I got really good news. He never left. He never left. He's been right there beside you the whole time. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's right there with you. Don't miss it. God is calling out to each of us. If you have your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. God has always been calling out to us. We're skipping ahead in the story a little bit, but it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called out to the man and to the woman, essentially. There's those three words. Let's read them together. Where are you? Where are you? Something has gone terribly wrong in this story. Something is broken, right? Genesis is supposed to be about paradise, about perfection, about beauty, right? Something has been broken. And we've all felt the brokenness of these worlds. That's why we love these stories, and that's why we're looking at these stories through the lens of Genesis, because they borrow their plots from the story. They all follow the same plots. The reason you love all those shows that we just talked about is not because everything goes great for the characters in those stories, because you can relate there's family dysfunction. There's, I mean, it, they, Genesis puts the fun in dysfunction. I'll tell you that. You want to look for some imperfect family dysfunction, read the book of Genesis, okay? And romance and beauty and adventure. But those stories are also full of broken relationships and divorce and pain and heartache and backstabbing and struggle with isolation and loneliness and all these things that you and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis. 
We experience the brokenness of our world, and that's why we resonate with these stories. And that is certainly true of the TV show that we're going to look at today called the, the, the family-friendly, Christ-centered, wholesome, pure family show called Breaking Bad. Uh, just, just to show of hands, how many of you have seen this show? Just so I know what I'm talking Okay, awesome. Well, I had to binge on it this week, so I knew what I was preaching about. Uh, this isn't one of the shows that I've watched. However, a lot of people say that this is one of the, the greatest, highly acclaimed TV series of all time. And in fact, in the, the pilot episode alone, we discover this character, Walter White. And just as a disclaimer, before I show some clips and things like that, uh, here is your um, public service announcement today. Lutheran Church of Hope at any of our campuses, therefore, as we begin the sermon series, does not endorse everything that you will see ever in these TV series. If you go home, we apologize now for some of the words that are used and the action that takes place does not reflect the teaching statement or the theology or the values of Lutheran Church of Hope. So help me God. Okay, so that's the public service announcement today, okay? However... However, there's truth everywhere. Everything is spiritual, okay? We divide things up into sacred and secular. God's all over this thing, okay? And if you look at Breaking Bad and you look at the story of Adam and Eve, we're going to see a lot of parallels today, okay? And so the, the series begins with this character, Walter White, who's played by Brian Cranston, and he does a phenomenal job. He's just an ordinary chemistry teacher teaching this high school chemistry class, and in this opening scene from the pilot episode, it's so fascinating how he's teaching them a chemistry lesson, but he's actually laying out the plot and the story of the entire series as well as the book of Genesis. Listen closely. And that's all of life. It's growth and then decay, and then transformation. And it's fascinating, really, because what he just described is the plot of the story of, of his life. There's growth, there's decay, and then there's transformation. And in case of Walter White, transformation for the worse. But it's also our story as well. It's the book of Genesis. Genesis doesn't begin with the fall, with brokenness, with sin. Genesis begins with paradise, with creation. If you have your Bibles, flip back a couple pages. It's probably on page one. How often do we get to turn to page one? So Genesis chapter 1, you know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and there was light in the darkness and the separation between the night and the day, and God said it was good. This is Genesis 1 in about 15 seconds here, right? And then God creates the earth and the sky and the sea and separates the sea from the land and the sky, and he says it is good, right? And then he creates the plants and the animals and all living beings, and he says, behold, it is good good, right? And then skip ahead to the sixth day. Creation is building to a climax and the pinnacle of creation. God creates man. God creates humankind. And then from his rib, he creates a woman and he puts his stamp on them and says, you are made in my image with my characteristics. And we skip down to verse 32, or excuse me, 31. And God says, it is what? Very good. Not just good, but very good. And I just want to pause right there because I hope that you hear that today. One opinion in this world matters about you. And before anybody else gets to determine your value and your worth, behold, God says, you are very good. In fact, you're worth dying for later on in the story. If you think you're junk, if you think that you're a mistake, if you think that you're an accident, if you think that you're ugly, if you think that you're not good enough, that you're not worth it, what does that say about God? God says, I don't make junk. I make things that are good, and I make things that are very good, and you're one of them. So before anybody else gets to determine your value or worth, 
before any man or woman comes in and out of your life, and by the way that they treat you or things that they say to you, all of a sudden you internalize that and that becomes your identity, God says, hold on a minute. Who created you? Who knows you better than anybody else? One opinion matters, and that's your creator, and he says you are very good. There's a lot of guilt and shame around this time of year when it comes to New Year's resolutions. Because all, we're all focused on the future, and rightly so. It's good to set goals and, and have a, an image and a version of the you that you want to be, but there's a lot of guilt and shame that gets associated with that because we think that somehow I'm not going to be good enough in God's eyes, until I get to wherever I, I fix these things in my life and I fix my marriage and I fix all these things to get better. I got some really good news for you this morning. God loves you, not just the future version of you. God loves you right now in the middle of your mess with all of your brokenness and all of your mistakes. God loves you, not just the future version of you. And God not only creates Adam and Eve, but we read in the rest of the story, he places them in the garden, and he talks, and he walks with them. I mean, when I say Adam and Eve, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Right? Sin, right? The fall, right? Biting the apple, which, by the way, not biblical. Never says the apple. It just says the fruit. Could have been watermelon, for all we know, right? But probably seedless, seedless, because God's just good like that. And that's paradise. It was perfection, right? No seeds. Just eat it, right? A lot of us think that the story starts with sin, but it actually starts with intimacy. Skip ahead to chapter 2 and we read this in verse 25. Let's read this together on the screen. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. Can you imagine what that would be like? No shame, no fear, not worrying about how you compare to others, not worrying about how you measure up to other families on Facebook. Not worrying about how your kids behave compared and where they're at in life and, and if they're married or not. And I, there's no comparison and wondering if you measure up. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no wondering if you're good enough. There's no one wondering what you look like in front of the mirror. You're just you, and you're very good because God told you so, and that's all that matters. And you have this trust between you and your creator and between you and your spouse, between you and other created beings. That's what you were created for. You were created for intimacy with God. That's the point of everything we do, is to get you connected to Jesus. But as we know in Genesis chapter 3, we know that in any good story, there's always evil. And why? Because our story. Evil enters and our story takes a fateful turn. In chapter 3, the serpent comes and it tempts them to second-guess their trust in God. The serpent says, did, did God really say that? And you can trace every sin that we have back to the lie that God's not enough. I need to go something else to some relationship, to some drink, to some drug, to sex, to some satisfaction to fill me up because God's not enough. And that was the original problem. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some, guys listen up, gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, gentlemen, we love to read this story because we love to get on our high horse and go, see, that's why women are the issue, right? All Eve had one job to do, right? And I'm sure, you know, as you read the story, of course, the guy was standing right there, and before he bit it too, I'm sure that Adam went on this rant and said, Eve, no, I'm going to step up and be a man of integrity and, and be a man of God, and Eve, you shouldn't have done this, and God, you know, he doesn't want us to eat that. We can eat from anywhere else. He's given us complete freedom, but Eve, please don't eat of that fruit. Please, I beg of you. 
That's not what the story says. So guys, before you get on your high horse and start blaming the woman for everything, remember there's that tricky little verse in there that says the man was with her, paralyzed by passivity. You ever met a passive man? Guys, we all struggle with this. What? What happened? Right? What did you just do? We all struggle with that, and it traces back to the first man, to Adam. And the tragedy of this story is that not two bites of fruit were taken. The tragedy is that Adam and Eve's relationship with God is broken. Intimacy, whether it's friendship or marriage, intimacy is based on trust. And that when then that trust is broken in a relationship, it's hard to regain that intimacy. It takes a long time to build it back. You can. It's possible. I've seen it happen. But as a man and a woman come together, as Adam and Eve were, it says they become one flesh. That's, that's what marriage is about. It's becoming one flesh. Marriage isn't a state of Iowa created thing or a national government created thing. Marriage is a God created thing. And God says a man and a woman become one flesh. And what happens when you tear flesh? It's painful. It hurts. And that's what happens is that relationship with God is broken and relationship with each other is broken and the shock waves are felt throughout all of creation. They've rebelled. Fear enters the story. Lies. They start blaming each other. He did it. She did it. It's her fault. It's his fault. One could argue that as a nice subtext or a subtitle is Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, Breaking Bad. Right? Do you start to see the parallels? Here's the thing. We love Genesis 1 because it's what we were created for. All of us can remember a time in our lives that was in the beginning or once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? When everything was good, before war broke out, before all the terrible things happened. All of us can remember those times in our lives of innocence and beauty before it happened. What happened to you? What was the thing that just knocked you off your horse? Things were going along in your life and what happened to you? We all have an in the beginning in our lives before the bullying, <laughs> those wounds you still carry with you from high school, before the breakup, before the divorce, before the addiction, before the abuse, before the dead-end job, before the fire went out in your marriage, before the loved one died, before life got demanding, when things were once good and innocent and beautiful. We resonate, we, we, we love Genesis 1 because it's what we long for. We resonate with Genesis 3 because we live in a broken world. And there's not one of us here today that's immune to that. We all feel that brokenness. Do you remember what Walter White says in that opening clip? It's really all of life. There's creation, then there's decay, and then there's transformation. It's the story of Genesis. And we know that there's decay, there's brokenness in the story because Walter White doesn't stay this nice, ordinary chemistry teacher just like any of us. He breaks bad. He has this uh, incurable cancer, this disease that, that he's going to die. And so he wants to provide a financial stable future for his family. And he enters the world of the drug trade. And he does what he knows how to do best. He is a, a world-class chemist. And he knows his stuff. And he knows how to mix chemi uh, chemicals and molecules together. And so he starts making crystal meth to sell it, and he ends up getting more money than he ever knows what to do with. He, de he doesn't understand his situation, and so think about what I'm about to say through the, Lenesis, the lens of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Walter White seizes control of the situation, and in seizing control of it himself, he ends up destroying himself, 
and the relationship with everybody around him. Does that remind you of any other story? Adam and Eve, in an effort to try to control their situation, to say that God's not enough, we're going to take control of it ourselves, and they end up destroying their relationship with God and with each other. The parallels are pretty crazy. And Walter White actually spends much of this TV show hiding, as he does in this next clip. You're going to hear some of his friends, some of his closest friends that used to be that helped him start this company to make all this money from pharmaceuticals end up betraying him and backstabbing him, and they're interviewed on national TV, and he's watching it, and he's hiding in isolation, and just watch the pain in his eyes from the decay, from the broken relationship. Take a look. Gone. Hiding. Of what he spends most of the show doing, hiding, destroying every relationship in his path. And you can see it in his eyes, can't you? I've seen that look in some of your eyes as well. It's pain. It's hurt. It's wounds. And you can see it in his eyes. He's, he's hiding. He's not just hiding physically, but in anger and in bitterness and in pain. What do Adam and Eve do after their relationship with God has been broken? They hide. They hide. We go back to the story in chapter 3, verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame Suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness, and so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. We're still covering ourselves. You and I create fig leaves all the time, spiritually, of, who, of the image that we want to project to the world. We, we all hide. And maybe you never considered this about the story, but this is the first time in human existence that the concept of hiding was even considered. Before this, nobody needed to hide from God or hide anything from God because they had this perfect intimacy. He knows everything about us and we know everything about him. You don't need to hide. Why do we hide when we don't want to be seen, when we don't want to be exposed? And here comes God with this piercing to our hearts question. The Lord God called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? Now, does God know where Adam is? Absolutely. Some of us get the wrong idea about this part of the story. We think, is this like a giant game of hide and seek with God? Like Adam and Eve are behind this bush and God's like, come out, come out, wherever you are, I can't find. God knows exactly where they are. He's God. And God knows exactly where you are. When God asks Adam, where are you? That's a question that pierces his heart and should cut right to the heart of who we are today as well. Where are you in relationship with God? Not in a condemning way like Geez, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> in a grace-filled way, God came looking for them in their sin. Not when they got fixed up. God comes looking for you wherever you're hiding this morning and says, where are you? And God asked Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? As in, why would you ever feel like you need to hide anything in your life from me? God says, there's no need to hide what I already see. Nothing is off limits to God. What would it look like to have nothing to hide? What would it look like to have nothing to hide? Why are you hiding? We all hide, not just Walter White, not just Adam and Eve. We all hide, and it starts from a very early age. How many of you are familiar with hide-and-seek? Remember playing hide-and-seek? You play it with your kids, with your grandkids? Yeah, familiar with hide-and-go-seek. This is one of my favorite games Growing up, I love to hide. 
for fun, not because I was hiding from anything or anyone necessarily, but in hide-and-seek, especially when you grow up, as I, many of you know, I was a pastor's kid, we got to play some pretty epic games of hide-and-seek at my dad's church growing up, this big brick church, and there's tons of places to hide. And when you're the pastor's kid, you got to leg up on everybody else in youth group because you know the good places to hide, right? So one day at youth group, I was probably in third or fourth grade. It was kind of an after-school program. There's probably 15 or 20 of us, and our youth director announces, we're going to play hide-and-go-seek. She has no idea what she's getting into with the pastor's kid, right? And so everybody else, okay, go. And she says, I'll find you and scatter. And people are hiding under pews. You know, that's cute. Nice try. You know, or behind a curtain or behind the flag or behind a stack of Bibles or something like that, like lame sauce, right? I know the good places to hide, right? I go downstairs, as only the pastor's kid would know, back behind the kitchen where the old cabinets that have been ripped out from the kitchen are stored in the HVAC room behind the furnace in a closet underneath the sink, and I climb under the sink, open the door under the sink in this cabinet, and there I hide. This will work pretty good. Yeah, it did. So I think our youth director thought the game would take 10 or 15 minutes. Like, we'll all stay there together, and she goes around, and she's finding all the kids, and I hear footsteps and, and voices, and probably what was about 15 minutes later, I hear, Jonathan, come out. Where are you? Like, the game's all done, and I'm like, I know this trick. They're just saying that because they want me to come out, right? They're playing me, right? I'm staying right where I'm at, and I stayed quiet for 15 minutes. I have no idea. I'm in third grade. We have no concept of time, right? 15 minutes, half an hour, 45. I stayed under the sink in that cabinet in the furnace room of the church in the basement for two hours. An hour and a half after the rest of the youth group had gone home, meanwhile, my youth director is freaking out, and she's got to call her boss, my dad, the pastor, and say, uh, I lost your son, right? We can't find Jonathan, right? My parents are freaking out. My mom's freaking out. Where did he go? Did he, did, is he running around town? They call the police. The police come over. My brother and his friends come over, and they have a search party going through Emmanuel Lutheran Church looking for Jonathan Anderson because the pastor's kid can't be found and they're looking all over. And then I hear some footsteps come down the stairs and I hear the voice of my father say, Jonathan, it's time to come out. And I'm like, oh, busted, right? And I come out and there's my whole family and all my friends and the police standing there. <laughs> it happened. And my mother is furious. I, you know, you get the mom look of like, what are you doing? And she's like, we have been worried sick. Where are you? And the police are just shaking their heads, looking at my dad, saying, get your son under control, all of this. And I pop out, and I throw my arms in the air, and what do you think I said? Did I win? Right? That was the first thing I thought of, right? Let's just say I spent some time in my room that night, right? <laughs> there's a time to hide, and then there's a time to be found. And for some reason, when I heard the voice of my father... I knew it was safe to come out. And I didn't need to hide anymore. And God calls out to Adam and Eve, but that's not what they do. Adam says, I was afraid, and so I hid. And so do we. Not just under sinks and not just in gardens, but we hide. Let's just be honest. Let's be real. Like, that's why we're here, right? We hide behind our shame. We hide all the time behind mistakes that we've made from our past. We hide behind masks of the happy church face that some of you that are maybe new to our community and you've experienced church in a way that you think you have to walk in the doors and even though you just had an argument with your spouse in the car on the way and you're mad at your kids because you're late and you checked them in to hope kids late and you had a really hard week and your finances are tight and your marriage is on the rocks, the second you walk in those doors, you put on the happy church face of, hey, everything's going great, everything's great, wonderful, yeah, oh, great. 
is it okay for you to not be okay? And if there's any place where you can be real, it should be here. It should be here. We hide behind the church mask, wondering, if, boy, if somebody actually found out what I'm going through in my life, a church person, boy, they wouldn't want me around hope. Here's my quick definition of what it means to hide. We hide whenever we choose to show the world who we're supposed to be instead of who God created us to be. The image that we project to the world. Ladies, inside of you, there is a creative, passionate woman who's been called to set an example for other women in the faith and invest in others, but that woman is hiding behind years of insecurities and expectations of everybody else and wounds from your past. And I don't know why God wants me to tell you this, but I just feel like he wants me to ask you, isn't playing the victim year after year after year after something that happened a long time ago exhausting? I've said it once and I'll say it again. We are products of our past, but you do not have to be a prisoner of your past. You do not need to live year after year and live the rest of your life as a victim when you have a God of victory. Look to the cross. You don't have to live as a victim. Jesus was the victim for you. An innocent man became a victim so that you don't have to live reactionary your entire life. You can live for the future. God has so much more for you. Guys, inside of you, there is a strong, confident man of God who has been called to make an impact for the kingdom. But that man is hiding behind years of shame about how you feel like you don't measure up and you're not a real man and you don't even know what a real man is. And so you pose. And men, we put on fig leaves all the time. Not figuratively, not, not literally, but figuratively. We hide, and, and we hide behind the poser, and we hide behind the lie that real men don't need help, and real men don't show emotion, and real men don't have actual friendships. We hide behind these things. And for many of us, we hide exactly behind what Adam hid behind, standing there watching his wife go down this road and bite the fruit. We hide behind passivity, and we watch life happen, and we watch our marriage happen, and we watch our kids grow up, and we watch ministry happen, and we stand by and go, I don't know if I have what it takes. You absolutely do have what it takes, and God is calling you out of hiding today and saying, be who you are. This message is not go find yourself. This message is that God has found you, and he calls you out of hiding, and he says, step it up and be a man, not in the sense of the world being some tough, macho guy. Be a man and admit that you're weak. The most manly men I know are weak, and they're vulnerable because they know they're desperate for Jesus. That's what makes them strong, not their own strength, not their macho-ness, is our weakness and our vulnerability. I've heard so many people say when it comes to our identity and who we are and your personality, oh, that's just the way I am. I'm just vulgar. I just cuss a lot. I, just, I have a drink once in a while because it makes me feel better. This is just kind of who I am. I, I, we're never going to get that kind of connection back in our marriage. It's just kind of what we are now. Like We're kind of through that honeymoon stage. It's just kind of who I am. Is it who you are, or is it the false identity that you've constructed to make yourself feel better in the eyes of everybody else? Is it your fig leaf? We all hide, and God says to all of us this morning, come out of hiding. You're safe here with me. The safest place in the world is with your Father. So come out of hiding and step into who you really are. One of my favorite authors is Brene Brown, and she has dedicated her life and actually has her PhD 
in the study of shame <laughs> and the culture of shame. And she's done a lot of research on shame. And the opposite, really, of shame is stepping into those vulnerable places in our lives. All those places where you feel weak or inadequate as a man or a woman, it's about vulnerability. And I love this quote. She says, vulnerability is not about weakness. It's about showing up and being seen. Some of you are hiding, and God's saying, time to be seen. And I don't know what that looks like for you today. It might be as practical as having the conversation with your spouse that you need to have. It might be as practical as in putting your phone down and engaging with your kids and looking them in the eyes and playing with them and investing in their life and asking them good questions. It might be as practical as showing up at the new member class after this service and saying, I'm going to stop bouncing around and posing, and when somebody gets on my nerves or I have a bad church experience, I'm out and I'm going to bounce to the next church. If you're looking for a perfect church, you're not going to find it. But if you're looking for a place where you can be real, I'd challenge you today to plug in. Come out of hiding, come to new member class, and experience church as a family. Families aren't perfect, they're real, but they love deeply. Come to new member class. Guys, come out of hiding, come to guys kickoff this Thursday. Let yourself be known. Maybe it's going to counseling, maybe it's finding friendship, maybe it's joining a small group, whatever it is. Let yourself be known. Let yourself be seen. When I was under the sink, literally, I heard my father's voice, and something in me said, it's time to be found. Your story does not have to end where it is. Your story does not have to end in brokenness. Remember what Walter White says? First there's growth, and then there's decay, and then what? Transformation. That's where our story ends. That's where Genesis 3 ends. God comes pursuing us. Rescue is available. God comes to us through the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and that rescue is completed on an old Roman cross when God takes your shame and the abuse you've experienced and your guilt and your sin and your fear, even your apathy this morning, and he nails it to the cross so that you wouldn't have to live in those false identities anymore. God says, come out of hiding let me rescue you. Let me tell you who you really are so that nothing would ever stand in the way of you in a relationship with me. This isn't just hypothetical stuff I'm talking about. There's transformation that's taken place all around us. I've been waiting a year to tell you this story. It was actually a year ago on this weekend in January. We were getting ready for worship, and I was back there by the tech booth, and a guy, a young man, uh, came up to me, and his name was Jesse, and he's a, a young man, a young dad, actually. He was in his mid-30s. Uh, he'd been coming for a few months with his family. They've since moved away. He got a job in another town, but they were a part of our community for about a year. And he came up to me, and a lot of people think that if they are going to go up and talk to the pastor, it means that like something terrible has happened in their life. And so the first thing he says to me is, uh, hey, pastor, I'm Jesse. You don't know me. There's nothing terrible going on in my life. I just want you to know that. I'm like, oh, okay, that's okay. I'm not just emergency room pastor here. Like we can, I'm a dude. We can just be friends, and we can talk. And so he said, there's nothing terrible going on, but I just got to tell you, I wanted uh, to meet you. I just, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in... I'm apathetic to this whole thing. I've been married for seven years. I have two young kids, and life is just sort of blah. I'm tired of just getting up every day and going to work and coming home, and my marriage is like the, it's almost like a little pilot light of the flame that it used to be when we got married, and I feel like we're just raising kids and we're just roommates. We're just kind of maintaining our marriage. I've got some ugly habits that I struggle with, and I, I know you're a pastor, and you're probably closer to God, so I can probably tell you. And I said, no, you can just tell God himself. You know what? He already knows. 
He said, I just don't know what to do. I, I'm, I'm stuck. <laughs> I show up here every week and I just kind of numb to the whole thing. And knowing what was coming later on after the service, I looked at him, I said, Jesse, have you ever been baptized before? And this is honestly what he said. He said, no, I thought that was just for kids. And I came to learn that he grew up in a church that baptized infants, as, as we do, baptized everybody, but he came on as a third or fourth grader, and he never saw an adult be baptized, and so he thought he was just for the kids. And I said, absolutely, baptism is for everybody. It's biblical, and it's for everybody. And I said, Jesse, you picked a great day to come. Because he didn't know that after that service, as we sometimes do, we were offering open baptisms. It doesn't seem Lutheran, but it's biblical. That's why we do it. And anybody that can come up, and I said, Jesse, do you know what baptism is? And I said, it's a fresh start. It's dying to your old self and saying, I can't be who I want to be on my own. And so I need Jesus. And rising again to new life. And after that service, one of the coolest things ever, he came up with his whole family and with his two kids watching him. This strong, confident, put-together man. His two young kids watched him do probably the most important thing they will ever watch their dad do. And that is be made new by Jesus Christ. Probably the most macho man thing he's ever done. Humble himself before a holy God. And he's weeping and he's crying and he's like trying to wipe away the tears. He's like, oh man, I can't cry in front of the pastor. And I said, you never have to apologize for your tears. Some of the toughest, most manly, godly men I know cry a lot because tears are evidence that God is moving in your heart. So if you cry during worship or during a sermon or whatever, just let it flow, baby. If you, if you can't be real and honest in church, where, where can you be? And he was baptized in front of his wife and his kids and he wrote me this letter a couple weeks later, he said, Dear Pastor John, coming up to be baptized that day last January was one of the best things I've ever done. Something changed that day. I felt like God reminded me of who I am. I'm a man of God and I'm not just here to exist. I'm here to live for God. He says, after that day, I ended up becoming a new member. I went to the new member class. I got connected in a men's group and he said, if there's any guys listening, I want them to know that having a group of guys that I can be real with every week is amazing. I don't know what I would do without it. One thing I want everybody to know if you ever get baptized is that it's not magic. It doesn't take all your, it doesn't take all your problems away. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. But he says it does connect you with Jesus. And that's what matters most. And he says, because I'm with Jesus, I'm a better husband, I'm a better father, and I serve my family and my wife, not out of duty or obligation, but because it's who Jesus is, and I'm following him. Thanks for everything. Jesse. There's growth, and there's decay, and there's transformation. It's a story of Walter White's story of Genesis. It's Jesse's story, and it can be your story as well. And so today, in a little bit, we're going to share the first sacrament that we have as Lutherans. We're going to share Holy Communion together. But just because it's a, it's a big day and it's a new year, we're going to do a double header, and we're going to do both sacraments. So we're going to receive the gift of Holy Communion, which is coming and asking God to forgive us and admit that we need a Savior. And then after that, the band's going to lead us in a song, and then I would encourage you to stick around 
and we're going to do exactly what we did one year ago to this day. And we're just going to invite any of you up that have never been baptized. It's not just for the kids. Any of you that have never been baptized before, or if you would like to reaffirm your baptism, if it happened long ago or years or months ago, and you want to be reminded of who you are, come on up. And notice I said reaffirm your baptism, not redo, right? Because whenever it happened, it happened, and God doesn't mess up, right? It took. It happened, right? So we don't need to redo it. We're going to reaffirm it of what God has already done. You're invited to receive that. What is baptism? It's just a way of saying, I want to be connected with Jesus. It's not weird. It's not magical. The water's not magic. I'm not magic. There's nothing I can do. It is the most natural thing to do to experience new life in Christ. If you're thirsty today, if your soul is empty, if your heart is empty and you need a drink, come experience the living water of Jesus. Today's the day. Don't wait any longer. Don't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. Today is the day of your salvation, Jesus says. Come on up. Receive my grace and my forgiveness through communion. Come get in line with all the other sinners here. And remember that we have a great Savior that has rescued us and who wants to wash you clean in the waters of baptism. Come on up and receive it. Believe it. No matter what age or how long you've been around or if this is your first day here, come on up. God has always used water to rescue people, to set them free, just as he did with the nation of Israel as he brought them through the water, through the Red Sea long ago. Maybe today God is calling you to come out of hiding and take a leap of faith today and jump into the ocean of his grace. Let's watch this final video as we prepare our hearts for communion.